What I would like to do is to introduce John Paul Jackson to you. <laughs> you realize the more important a person is, the less you say. Like in America, they will say, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. John Paul Jackson was born July the 30th, 1950, in Waxahachie, Texas. Has two sisters and one brother, married a bunch of children. It is hard to say which is his greater gift, his preaching, his teaching, his prophetic gift, his good looks, his... John Paul, I'm having trouble reading your writing. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16? 1 Samuel chapter 16. Begin at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. 
Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest. Jesse answered, But he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. May we bow for a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we invite the Holy Spirit to come. If you come, we'll be fine. If you don't, we are better off not even to attempt to speak. I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross 2,000 years ago to be applied today by your Spirit upon the hearts, the minds of those who hear, upon my tongue as I speak, that every word will be spoken in the Spirit and received as you intend. May this bring you great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The phrase, after God's own heart, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, is not exclusive to David. That is the good news. I would be a little bit disappointed, maybe even demoralized, if I thought that that was a phrase that only described one person, none before, none after. He is the only one of whom it is said, a man after God's own heart in Scripture. But when this phrase is used in the New Testament, we are given a green light to know anyone here may qualify for this. Because we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, after removing Saul, he made David their king. That means God made David their king. He, God, testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, here it comes, he will do everything I want him to do. I'm so glad those words were added. That way I may qualify. You may qualify. It's open territory, not exclusive. The qualification is not your background, your pedigree, whether you were gentry bred, poor, whether rich, whether you, whatever your color of skin, if you are one who will do everything God says to do, you are now in David's class.
Now, I want to have a word about the anointing. As I said, it's a tricky term used in more than one way. I defined it that which comes with ease. In other words, when you struggle, something has gone wrong. When you live within your anointing, everything is smooth. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, The Peter Principle. A very popular book several years ago, both sides of the Atlantic, had an original idea which comes around once a generation. And the idea was this. Every person is promoted to the level of their incompetence. The idea being that nearly everybody you run into is doing a job they're not doing very well. If only they'd kept the job they had before, they were all right. But they wanted a promotion. They wanted a rise in pay. They wanted more prestige. A vacancy came. They applied. They got it. But they were promoted to the level of their incompetence. They can't really do it. Nervous breakdowns, marriage breakdowns, all because a person is function at the level of their incompetence. The Holy Spirit will never promote you to the level of your incompetence. As long as you walk in the Spirit and live within your anointing, you don't have to worry. Go outside your anointing, you've got problems. Live within your anointing. Now this word anointing can be used interchangeably with gift, gifting, calling. And you need to come to terms with the limits of your anointing. You need to come to terms with the potential of your anointing. Nobody can do everything. And we need to be objective about ourselves to say there are some things I cannot do. King Saul became yesterday's man because he wouldn't do that. He went outside his anointing. He was anointed to be king. You would have thought, that's enough. <laughs> Wonderful. To be king. Who would want more than that? Saul did. He says, bring me the burnt offerings. He promoted himself to the level of his incompetence. And that is when he was rejected. And so we read in 1 Samuel 16. And you have, as I said yesterday, in one verse, three categories of people. Yesterday's man, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've uh, rejected him as king over Israel? Today's man, typified by Samuel, fill your horn with oil beyond your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Tomorrow's man, David, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, very interesting irony between yesterday's man and tomorrow's man. Yesterday's man and the man after God's own heart. Yesterday's man still wore the crown, but had lost the anointing. He lost the sense of God. He was still called the anointed because he was king. That's why I say you've got to watch that word anointing. It's used in more than, different, more than one way. 
But the way we're using it today, we're talking about the power of the Spirit, God's approval upon you. He still wore the crown but lost God's approval. Whereas David, when he was anointed by Samuel, did not wear the crown. But he had the anointing. Question. If you had a choice, which would you rather have, the anointing without the crown or the crown without the anointing? Now, there are those who would love the crown. Anointing or not, wouldn't matter to them because they love the accolades. They love the power. They love the prestige. Bad mistake. I'm counting on everybody here who aspires to be a man, a woman after God's own heart to want the anointing without the crown if necessary. David, he had no platform. He had no following. He had no prestige. He was a nobody. But he was given the anointing. Far better to have the anointing and wait for your time to come than to rush in and say, well, I want it now. I want to aspire to this and realize it right now. There are those who just won't wait. And therefore, because they won't wait, they want the better job, they want the more prestige, and it can happen in the ministry. There are those pastors who want the big church, they want the platform, they want the limelight, they want to be seen, they can't wait for God's time. The man after God's own heart is one who will wait for his time to come and realize that what God has given him is what will enable him to cope when his or her time has come. So you come to terms with what you're good at. Calvin called it special grace in nature. What that means is that everybody, even if they're not Christians, has a certain ability. It's God-given. You were born with it. Uh, Albert Einstein, no indication that he was a Christian, uh, that he was in, in any sense. And yet he had an IQ of 212. It was a gift of God. I think of people like Rachmaninoff, the Russian composer, uh, Yehudi Menuhin, the violinist. They weren't saved, but they had God-given gifts. So, your ability to do what you do, these, these musicians, they could play the guitar, they could play the keyboard, they could play the cello, even if they weren't saved. They're using them for God. Sometimes they say, I, I have this gift because I'm a Christian. Probably not really the case. God gave you that gift, and it becomes a part of your anointing. Now, it can be very humbling when you come to terms with what you can do and what you cannot do. For example, I can safely tell you today that I will not be offered 
to be professor of mathematics at King's College, London. Guarantee you that. When I was in high school, I failed algebra. Didn't get a B, didn't get a C, didn't get a D, didn't get an E, got an F. Failed. After I was out of high school, about three years later, a friend of mine said, R.T., would you like to earn $14 tomorrow? I said, yes, how can I do that? Well, at Wirtland High School, the teacher is sick, and they need somebody to take her place. And you teach a day, you'll earn $14. I said, I'll do it. But what do I have to teach? Well, 9 o'clock, spelling. I can do that. 10 o'clock, history. I can do that. 11 o'clock, uh, uh, you, you, you would teach geography. I can do that. 12 o'clock, lunch. I can do that. 1 o'clock, algebra. Can't do that. No problem. She will leave a note. You just say, read pages 52, 53, 54, and your teacher will be back tomorrow. Well, one o'clock came. I said, class, your teacher is sick today. You are to read chapter, uh, uh, pages 52, 53, 54. Get on with your work. They did. I sat there at the desk, and I thought, didn't realize I could teach algebra. <laughs> Until this kid comes up to me and says, teacher, how do you do this? Your teacher has her way of explaining this. <laughs> if I were to show you my way, how to do it, might upset her, and she'll be back tomorrow. Just get on with the next one. Here's a kid over here. Teacher, how do you do this? Look. Your teacher has her way of explaining this. Just go to the next one. I finally had to make a public announcement. If you don't understand it, just do the next one. Your teacher will be back tomorrow. She was sick again the next day. And I had to go through the whole thing again. I think they all twigged. I was never invited back. Now, it's humbling to come to terms with what you cannot do. But you see, God knows that. And he will never promote you to the level of your incompetence. Here's a little poem Louise found one day I share with you. There is some place for you to fill, some work for you to do, that no one can or ever will do quite as well as you. It may lie close along your way, some homely little duty that only needs your touch, your sway, to blossom into beauty. Well, King Saul would not accept the limits of his anointing, and he became yesterday's man overnight. And God had his eye on one who would do everything he was called to do, now, before I move on, I feel it might be good if I just take 
two minutes to warn you of the possibility of becoming yesterday's man or woman. As I said yesterday, has nothing to do with re being redundant, has nothing to do with retirement, has nothing to do with age. If I were to give an altar call at the end of the service and say, all who want to become yesterday's man or woman, we're going to give, sing three verses of Just As I Am, and you can come forward. Don't think you would be coming forward, but let me give you the signs. Or, here is how to become yesterday's man. One, you put yourself above the Word of God. In other words, you say, other people should have to go by this verse in the Bible, but I'm an exception. And God knows my particular need. And so you see yourself as exception to the rule. That's the devil. That's the way you become yesterday's man. You put yourself above the word. Everybody else should have to go by it, but not you. Second, King Saul took himself too seriously. This is the person who will not accept advice, cannot handle criticism. Third, he felt compelled to do what he did. That's the person who says, God told me. Even though it's not scriptural, it's not biblically based, it's not theologically sound. Fourth, he was accountable to nobody. This is so important. To whom are you accountable who knows where you are at a particular time? Who knows everything about you? Who knows your life backwards and forwards? And who will call a spade a spade? Just a few months before we retired in London, we had a, a, a person of considerable profile. If I were to give his name, many of you would know it. He was known for his prophetic gift, asked to be a member of Westminster Chapel. We broke the rules. We made a mistake. We let him in. And we noticed once he became a member, he was not to be found again. We couldn't get a hold of him. He wouldn't answer phone calls. But then he was in London one day. I called him in. I said, look, I'm very, very worried. Something is not right. You're accountable to nobody. You want it, we're going to be accountable to us. You're not. If you're not careful, you will become yesterday's man. He wept. I thought, oh, good. Weeks later, I could see that the weeping wasn't sincere. A year later, I can remember where I was in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport when a close friend of mine says, have you heard about so-and-so? I said, no, what, what, what? You don't know? No, what? Turns out this same man had fallen into immorality. And today, he is yesterday's man. Traceable to the fact he wouldn't be accountable you need someone who is not afraid 
to tell you what you need. You say, I'm accountable to God. That's the way this man was. Do you know, every church leader who falls, they always said, well, I'm accountable to God. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. We need to be accountable to each other. Those who will hold us and say to us what we need to hear. Fifth, King Saul was consumed with jealousy and threatened by David's anointing. We'll see more about that later. Six, he lost all sense of integrity, wouldn't keep his vow even to his son Jonathan. Seventh, he would repent, and it seemed sincere, but it didn't last. And finally, he sunk, sunk to depths no one would have dreamed of when he even consulted the witch of Endor after outlawing witchcraft in ancient Israel. A man after God's own heart will not follow that line. And you will want people to criticize you. And you will be open. You want help. You want them to say what you need to hear that you can be more like Jesus. Well, see the warning signs. No one here needs to become yesterday's man or woman. To be the man, the woman after God's own heart means that you will do whatever it takes, including wearing the stigma. Sometimes I think I want to write a whole book on this, may do it one day. The stigma. The stigma. Did you know it's a pure Greek word, stigmata? In the ancient Hellenistic world, it was a tattoo, a mark often burned in the body with a hot iron. It became a distinguishing mark. The man who bore the stigma was everywhere regarded as distinct, and it was usually marked on slaves who ran away or for stealing. Well, the Apostle Paul says, I'll use that word. He said, I bear in my body the mark, stigmata, of the Lord Jesus. In other words, there is an offense. If you are going to be a man, a woman after God's own heart, you will accept the stigma. Don't expect everybody to clap their hands when they find out that you've decided to put God first in your life. Don't expect people to congratulate you. Don't expect them to say, that's clever. They will think you're off your head. You will go unvindicated. It can be so painful. And so what is required is often for us to go outside our comfort zone. Did you know Samuel had to do that? When God said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil, be on your way. I've chosen uh, you uh, to go to, to the house of Jesse. And Samuel said, well, Saul will hear about it and kill me. How would you like the task of anointing a person king when there's already a king? It was dangerous stuff. And then Samuel, when he came to the house of Jesse, thought his job was going to be quick because he immediately sees Eliab. He says, oh, that's the one. But he was wrong. 
Now, why did Samuel think Eliab would be the man after God's own heart? The next king, the one he would anoint. Well, it was a natural deduction because in, in the ancient Israel, the firstborn always got double the inheritance. And so, Samuel naturally thought it would be Eliab. Turned out, the Lord says, Woe! Do not look at his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And perhaps you today may sit there with an inferiority complex. You say, I'm not qualified. It's going to be my brother, or my sister, or this person. You think, I don't have any of the advantages of these people. I don't have their intelligence. I don't have their gifting. I don't even have their good looks. I don't have anything. God's not going to want me. Good news. The man after God's own heart, the woman after God's own heart, God isn't looking for appearances. He's looking for someone who says, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And God says, really? And then you say, yes, Lord. <laughs> and he says, okay. Let me tell you something. To say, yes, Lord, is serious, serious, serious business. Because if God takes you seriously... He says, all right, I've got a work for you to do. And you may think that the work he has for you to do is going to make you rich and famous by next Thursday afternoon. I never will forget, we brought Arthur Blessed to Westminster Chapel. And uh, the reason I wanted Arthur, uh, the reason is I thought, I'll have a chance to get next to him. He was more like Jesus than anybody I'd ever met. And I thought, if I can just spend several days with Arthur, it's just going to rub off on me. The first thing Arthur made us do is to go out on the streets and pass out tracks. I thought, this isn't what I've had in mind, Arthur. I want you to preach for us. Well, he did. But he says, we've got to get out on the streets and meet the people. I, well, I preach the gospel every Sunday night. I do it better in the pulpit. You know, I died a thousand deaths. And we had to go to the streets. And you talk about stigma, offense. The middle class members of Westminster Chapel were offended that I, their minister, go out on the streets witnessing to tramps and tourists and they're not going to help the chapel at all. But it was something I had to do. And what it made it even worse is that the people that were praying to receive the Lord we never saw again, for the most part. And yet it was something I had to do. But there was something that took place about the same time, but it would take a while before I realized it. Even though I felt nothing, insofar as 
great sense of God, anointing, approval. I felt the opposite. Deacons turned against me. We nearly lost our ministry. They were going to throw us out and send us back to America, the hardest days. But I began to see three or four years later that parallel with this was an increased anointing, insight into Scripture. I began to see things I had never seen before. And you know, when you resolve to become a man, a woman after God's own heart and bear the stigma, don't expect on the same day for the angels to salute you and come into your room and anoint you and give you such a great sense of God, it may get worse. Remember, I received a letter from a lady one day. She says, Dear Dr. Kendall, think you might like to know that last week I started tithing. I thought to myself, that's good. But then the next paragraph of the letter said, the day after I started tithing, I got a bill from the Inland Revenue for 700 pounds. So she said, I guess it means I'm not supposed to tithe. You see, that's the way it always is. You make a commitment, and you think God's going to congratulate you. What he does is put obstacles in your way to see if you really mean it. And so I would say this lovingly to you today. Don't say, yes, Lord, until you're prepared for any obstacle to come your way and challenge you to your fingertips. I introduced a prayer covenant in Westminster Chapel a number of years ago where it turns out that 300 people signed up to pray every day for petitions. One of those petitions was we pray for the manifestation of God's glory in our midst along with an ever-increasing openness in us to the manner in which God chooses to turn up. Now, Louise and I have lived in England for over 28 years, three years at Oxford, 25 years to the day in Westminster Chapel. And I know the British fairly well. I would say the English are the most traditional people in the world, and I can tell you Westminster Chapel is the most traditional church in England. And we're asking now for a manifestation of God's glory, but knowing them as I did, we added the clause, we pray for an ever-increasing openness in us to the way he chooses to turn up. Because I know in church history, crazy things can happen. I'm from Kentucky, and you may not have heard of the Cane Ridge Revival. It was in Bourbon County, Kentucky. Isn't that funny? Bourbon County. People thought maybe that's what they had, but no, they just seemed that way when you saw them. It was the beginning of the camp meetings in 1800. And one July day, on a Sunday morning, a Methodist lay preacher stood on the top of a fallen tree. 
He took his text, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. They reckoned 15,000 people had gathered around. This was the beginning of the camp meeting phenomenon. They came in their covered wagons from seven states to Bourbon County, Kentucky. When he finished preaching, there were no fewer than 500 people flat on the ground. They were afraid they were dead. They would go up to them and sometimes they couldn't get a pulse or maybe two pulses a minute. You can't live on that. And there was panic. These people are dying. They're dead. But then hours later they would come out of it shouting with great assurance. Others would fall. For four days there were never fewer than 500 on the ground. It's called America's Second Great Awakening. It's the reason there's a Bible belt in America. It goes back to this. They called it the sound of Niagara. You could hear them a mile away. I th thought, what if that came to Westminster Chapel? <laughs> I'm not sure our people could cope with that. So that's why I put that phrase in. Well, now, the funniest thing, we wanted to do it real nice, so we had that little prayer covenant printed up by a nice printer. It went to the press. On the day that prayer covenant went to the press, that evening, I had dinner with Lyndon Bowering, my friend, who's chairman of CARE, and Charlie Colchester, who was then church warden of Holy Trinity Brompton. And we went to Soho, to a Chinese restaurant. And while we're sitting there, waiting for the food to come, Charlie Colchester spoke up and said, have you guys heard about this Toronto thing? What? You, you don't know? No. What, what do you mean? Lyndon, what's he mean? Charlie says, well, I don't know where to begin. He said, at Holy Trinity, they lay hands on people and they fall to the floor and they start laughing. He said, we left Sunday night at 11 o'clock, Serena and I, and there were 50 bodies of our friends on the floor laughing. He said, what do you guys think of that? What do you think, Lyndon? I don't know. What do you think? If you'd put me under a lie detector and ask me, did I think that was God, I would have said no. But one thing, I didn't want it to be of God. I find that offensive. But the big point was, if it really was of God, it would have come to Westminster Chapel first. <laughs> God wouldn't do that. I felt betrayed. I nearly lost my job going out on the streets witnessing to tramps and tourists and to think that God would come, first of all, to an Anglican church, in a, <laughs> which we all know is apostate. 
Holy Trinity Brompton with their Etonians and their posh Sloan Square accents, God wouldn't do that. I went to the pulpit that Sunday when I introduced the prayer covenant, went through these points about being open and referred to this and publicly said, we've got to be open, but that ain't it. I was wrong. In the same way, Samuel said, congratulations, Jesse Eliab. He's going to be the Lord's anointed. God said, whoa, wrong. I said, what's going on around London? It's not of God. Graciously, I'm so thankful. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this at all. But God pulled me aside. Ken Costa, the other church warden of HTB, phoned me, took me to lunch. And before we finished, when I had come to straighten him out, he told me so much. I called Louise. I said, honey, this is awful. I've made a big mistake. I believe this is of God. I had to go back to my pulpit publicly and climb down. That day we prayed for HTB and Sandy Miller. They became a sister church. It was one of the best moves I made. God was just patient with me. And it could be that you have taken your stand on something just as Samuel did and said, it's Eliab. Wrong. I know people because they took a stand and they got known for it would never change. I know Christian writers who won't reverse their position because they put something in print. Listen, you've got to ask the question, which is more important to you? What they're going to say and how much they're going to admire you for not changing your mind? Or do you want the anointing of the Spirit? And what made Samuel a great man is that publicly he climbed down. And so they had Shammah pass by. And Samuel said, well, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Abinadab pass by. And uh, Samuel's beginning to think he's lost his prophetic gift. And he says, I don't know what to say. Uh, uh, he's not the one. And Jesse says, don't worry, we got a bunch of them. And had all seven of his sons passed by. And by now, Samuel thinks he's really lost it. He said, I'm sorry, but this is not the one. Do you have any more? Well, we have another. You don't want him. Do you mind? They brought in David. And he was the one. As I said yesterday, God said, I found David. That means he looked for him. And you may feel that you're the least likely, the least likely to be chosen. But it is what God has in mind for you. And you've got to make a decision today whether you want to follow the anointing. Because this is the test. Whether you are truly to be a man, a woman, after God's own heart. Well, the problem is, we get used to something. Though we know it's not right, and we don't want to change. 
We recognize this is not right, but we just put it off, put it off. I never will forget one day I had a filling in a lower jaw tooth, wisdom tooth, that came out and uh, left a big hole. And I thought, I've got to get to the dentist now. But I couldn't. Well, luckily it didn't hurt. So I thought, I'll go tomorrow. Well, the next day, the hole was there, and I thought, it's not hurting. And do you know what? I got so I loved sticking my tongue in that hole. It was so much fun. It became a part of me. I kept it like that for weeks. Part of me. I had something else go wrong. I had to go to a dentist for a different tooth, and I thought, oh, no, he's going to want to fill that hole. That's the first thing the dentist said. Well, we'll fill that hole. I said, no, 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 don't do that. What do you say? You mean you don't want me to fill that hole? We're going to fill that hole. And I hated him filling that hole because I loved it, got used to it. (laughs) You know what it is to have the hole. You just don't want it touched. It's like the leaning tower of Pisa. The city fathers were warned it's going to fall over one day. So they called the chief architects of the world with these instructions. Keep it from falling, but don't correct the tilt. They don't want to change anything. Just leave it as it is. And it could be there's that in you that needs to be corrected. The hole needs to be filled. An attitude needs to be changed. The grudge has got to go. You must set them free. Forgive them totally. And you get so used to the way you are. The question is, do you want to move on so that you know you're hearing from God? It will mean bearing the stigma. And the last person anybody in that family thought would be the Lord's anointed was David. And could it be that you are the last person anybody would suspect as being tomorrow's man or woman? But you know, you have a gift no one else has. And you say, well, the trouble is what I'm good at, there's no demand for. Did you ever hear of a man by the name of Joseph? Favorite son of Jacob? He had these prophetic dreams. Can you imagine Joseph coming in to this part of England, goes to Maidstone Employment Agency, says, I want a job. They say, okay, Joseph, what do you do? He says, dream And I interpret dreams. Really? Your name again? Joseph. Thank you. We'll be in touch with you. You may feel that your gift is about as promising as that. And yet the day came when the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had a dream. Nobody could interpret it. Joseph did it. That made him prime minister of Egypt overnight. There's an anointing in you that is unique. When God made you, he threw the mold away. And your time will come. 
the only qualification. You say, yes, Lord, and mean what you say. And it may lead you to strange places. You may have to mix with people that you didn't want to go on holiday with. One morning, Colin Dye, minister of Kensington Temple, we had breakfast. He said, R.T., would you like to meet Rodney Howard Brown? I said, yeah, I'd like to meet him. He said, well, he'll have breakfast with you Thursday morning. Went to meet Rodney Howard Brown. Lyndon Bowering went with me and not expecting anything to come of it except that I was going to ask him some questions. In case you don't know who he is, he's a man, South African, moved to America, prayed for people. They would fall out under the power of God. A man by the name of Randy Clark got in the queue five times. He told me this. Five times to be prayed for by Rodney. The fifth time, he says, my hands are on fire. Rodney says, lay hands on anything that moves. He went from there to Toronto. The Toronto thing came from the hands of Randy Clark when one evening in Toronto at 11 o'clock at night, 400 people were on the floor. They met the next night. That was in January 1994. By April, they were coming from all over the world. The Sunday Telegraph gave it the nickname Toronto Blessing. Went back to a man that no one had heard of until then, and his gift was laying on of hands. Who would have thought a gift like that would make the difference? And as I sat there talking to Rodney, I said, what are you doing Saturday? He says, what you got in mind? I said, well, I'd love it if you'd come to Westminster Chapel and stand in the pulpit and pray. There won't be anybody there. Just stand there and pray. Well, he agreed to. And I said, and I'd also appreciate it if you'd pray for my wife, Louise, who's given me permission to tell this story she had two conditions. One, a cough that no doctor or hospital could heal. You could hear her a mile away. She went to the Brompton Hospital in London. They kept her in. They couldn't heal her cough. When we'd go to Florida in the summer, we thought the clear air would do it. It didn't. She had it for three years. On one occasion, it was so bad, had to take her to the emergency room at St. Thomas's Hospital to the eye clinic because she was about to have a detached retina from the cough. Parallel with the cough, Louise had slipped into a serious depression. It was so bad in 1993, I warned one of our deacons I may have to resign any day and go back to America. Those were awful days. So I said to Rodney, I want you to pray for Louise. Came home and told Louise about this man who was going to pray for her on Saturday. She wasn't too impressed. But on Saturday morning, having coughed all night and finally got to sleep at 4 o'clock that morning, I thought she's going to sleep in and miss it, but she got up at 9.30 and she says, I want that man to pray for me. You know, when you're desperate, you'll go where you think you might get help. 
She didn't know who he was. She said, I want that man to pray for me. Got her over to the vestry. An hour later, there was Rodney and Adonica, the children, waiting patiently. My secretary had given him a cup of tea. He went into our pulpit and prayed. He and Adonica came back to the vestry. Louise sat there, not even fully into everything. She'd slept very little. It was almost like she was comatose. She just sat there. You need to know, there was no hype, no preconditioning, no worship, no singing. They just started, they lay hands on her. They prayed for her for about five minutes. She was instantly healed, and that's 14 years ago. The last person I would have chosen. Then Rodney says, I think your wife ought to come to our meetings in Florida. So she did. He actually paid her way over. After the first night, she phoned. I said, what's it like? She said, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. She said, I, I think it's the nearest you get to heaven without dying. She said, it's the greatest experience of my life. She came back and the depression was gone as well. You see, you follow the anointing. It may lead you where you think you don't want to go. But if you're going to be a man, a woman after God's own heart, you have to become impervious to what they will say or think when God means more to you than anything in this world. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask you to take this word and apply this word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.